Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Finding the local news that matters most to your community. We talk with Kathy Brown about creating a local online news outlet and subsequent local newspaper for the Haddam-Killingworth region and what's next as she retires from it. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. News, be it local, national or international, continues to be reshaped as consumers look to other sources and outlets for the news that means something to them. We also hear about news deserts in this country and even in Connecticut, where once-loved daily or weekly newspapers have disappeared due to low readership, the high cost of doing business and waning advertising revenues. But it's not all doom and gloom for the news industry or for consumers of news. New technology and even old technology are still finding their feet in this ever-changing landscape. And almost nine years ago, Kathy Brown, a resident of Haddam, who had a full-time teaching job plus a family, decided she was going to start an online news outlet because she felt the news in her area needed to be better. That spawned Haddam Killingworth Now, which later became a physical newspaper. Now, all these years later, Kathy, who was the senior editor, has decided to retire from the news business, and I caught up with her for a chat about why she started the news outlet and what they've achieved over the years. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So almost nine years of this creation of yours. Before we get into the whole sort of like journey, what made you give it up? My father passed away in February and I realized that my daughter, my youngest daughter, was going into her senior year of high school And I have made the excuses many, many times that I just don't have time to do whatever, you know, go out to dinner with my father or do something with my daughter because I just needed to post one more article, just needed to write one more article, just needed to go somewhere and take a picture. And I decided that maybe it was time to get some of my life back. I hear what you say, because it it is a lot of work. I mean, let's go down this journey. I mean, we were talking just before we started doing the interview, almost nine years of you being basically the, the newspaper and then gathering this incredible team behind you as well. Why did you come up with this idea in the first place back in, I believe it was, you know, around about 2013, 2014? What was missing that you felt you needed to create this news outlet? So a, a few of us created it. We kept talking about making a newspaper that was not slanted, not biased. We had a once a month news source, quote unquote, in town that was heavily slanted. And people had written letters to the editor that wouldn't get published. And and so a bunch of us talked about doing a newspaper. I thought a print edition would be too much work too expensive. So I was advocating for online and some people were not sure about that. Won't say that some of them were older than me, but they were older than me. So I kept advocating for online 
And finally, Ed Munster got 26 people to each put in, I think it was $250 to pay for the web hosting, insurance, that kind of thing. And a few of us said we were going to, you know, post things online. And it went live Labor Day weekend of 2014 in a flurry. And it was, it was harder than we thought to start. You know, we thought, oh, everybody's going to be excited and send us information. And instead, it was a lot of looking for news, you know, seeing on the town green, seeing a sign that said, you know, blood drive or big sale or whatever it was that was coming and then finding out more information and posting it on online and seeing a business that, you know, you see activity in a building and you go knock on a door and say, hey, you know, what are you what are you making here? and getting articles that way. It is better now. There are a lot of people submitting articles all over the region. So it is easier than it was when we started. Tell us a little bit about your background. You're an educator, a professional educator. Did you have like a journalism background? I mean, you know, again, what was driving you to do this? You said, obviously, it was more difficult than you thought when when it started. And it is interesting, you know, being in the news business, the the reluctance of people, they want to hear news, but then don't want to be part of it. But what was driving you? I was an English major. I I mean, you know, I wanted to write the great American novel that I never wrote. But um, and I had journalism classes in college. I think just getting information out as purely information was my driver. And I wanted good news as well as, I mean, you can't do news without having some bad news in there, like, you know, car crashes and obituaries and arrest records. But I liked spreading the good news. You know, there are plenty of positive stories in town, in our community that weren't getting told. And I thought, you know, the interesting people that are out there and the interesting work that people do needed to be lauded. I just, I thought it for me, I wanted the negativity to stop. And there was a lot of negativity in politics in our town on social media. And I thought that could be balanced out by more, um, more good news and just news that is not slanted. I was big on word choice. And if somebody submitted something and I said, you know, this can go in as an op-ed or a letter to the editor. And they'd say, why? And I'd say, well, your word choice gives a lot of opinions and that's not news. It's interesting you say that because as a trained journalist myself, I remember when I was undergoing my my training many, many years ago as well, the person who taught me had exactly the same ideals as you. And it's something that I have always kept very close to my heart as well, is that journalists are there to report the facts. I'm not here to give my opinion as a journalist. I'm here to educate, entertain, and also to provide information, obviously, to that audience to allow them to make their own decisions at the end of the day and in a way that is unbiased and truthful. Exactly. So this took off because, let's face it, you put in so many hours. I understand you were putting in 20, 30 hours a week plus. Yep. So on that's on top of family life, a full-time job as well. I don't know how you managed to do it, but obviously, as you say, you, you created a team around you. Then, of course, after a few years, it stops just being an online news outlet. The physical newspaper came about. Tell us about that journey, because that must have been a whole new ballgame. It was. Um, 
and I was sort of against it, I will have to say, though I do like looking at it. I think Ed Munster found Meg, who became the composition editor. So she was the one who chose the stories. I remained purely online. And then so every time I posted a story or anybody else posted a story, we'd CC her on it so that she knew what was what was there to choose from. And then she would choose a smattering of articles to make either an eight-page or a 12-page newspaper such that we kind of tried to balance it so you know it wasn't all sports, it wasn't all politics, so that there would be something of interest for everyone. She went on a couple of maternity leaves in there, and we filled in for her during those. And so I did do some of the print edition, but that was not my thing. As I said, ultimately it became, you know, a printed newspaper. I believe it was uh, distributed to, I think, was it every household in the area? Yeah, first it was, so it's a joint venture with East Haddam. So they do their side, we do our side, but it started out just Haddam, East Haddam. And so they were both distributed to all homes in East Haddam and Haddam. And then in a couple of years ago, I think it was 2019, we expanded to Killingworth. So then all of that went to Killingworth and Haddam and East Haddam, which was, I believe, about 12,000 households. So the distribution of this, what started off as a smaller, you know, online newspaper, then turned into a physical newspaper, really is sort of outstripping a lot of the big sort of dailies that we have, and they're disappearing, unfortunately, but some of the big dailies that we have here in the state. It is, and and ours is paid for by advertising. So it it does, does go free to each home. And I do know that there are not many people who still subscribe to the Middletown Press or the current, just because a lot of that is not really pertinent to our area. I hear what you say and you're absolutely right. I mean, we're going to talk in a moment about, you know, some of the new sort of like online news outlets that have started locally and there have been a few, but yeah, some of these newspapers that we consider, you know, our staple here in this part of the state, so much of it now is associated press pieces that they pick up or it's not actually local, local, which sort of really does defeat the purpose of a local newspaper. So you, you can understand why people are sort of signing off from those and saying, well, that's not news from my backyard. So, you know, I know Connecticut isn't a big state, but at the end of the day, we still want to know what's happening near to us hyperlocal rather than necessarily what's happening in the western part of the state. Correct. So talk to us about the fact that um you this is a volunteer this was a volunteer role for you. I mean, is it is it also a volunteer role for everybody else? Because I mean, if it's an all-volunteer thing, I mean that's an incredible again amount of time that everybody has decided and did decide to actually put into creating this, as I say, this phenomenal newspaper. Yeah, it's a 5013C. So we are considered a nonprofit. We give out a scholarship each year. There are some people that are behind the scenes that don't really work on the newspaper themselves, but they're in the um, Haddam Civic League, which is the parent organization. That's the one that gives out the scholarship and kind of has their quarterly meetings and all that. So yeah, they're all volunteers, (laughs) all getting out there, getting all the advertising, you know, anybody who goes out and photographs. We've had people who have, you know, been in college, then they uh, come out of the word work and say, you know, can I write a couple of stories? Sure. We've had people go from writing them for us to getting actual jobs on what I call real newspapers. I guess I've never considered my ours a real newspaper. <laughs> I don't know why, but you know, so, some people come and go. Some people have been around for 
the whole nine years. How proud are you of that? Because like you said, I know you've just joked and you've laughed this off and said you've never considered it a real newspaper. (laughs) Of course, the reality is, of course, it's a real newspaper. And I, I see where you're coming from. You're so close to it. And, you know, and having been one of the people that conceived it. But like I said, you know, it's it does an incredible job. It's hyper local. It has a bigger distribution, as I say, than most of our uh, local dailies here. It must make you immensely proud, you and the team, as to what you achieve. Because I'm guessing you said you hadn't done anything like this before. I'm guessing that many of the others really didn't have maybe newspaper experience either. So was this all new to all of you? No. Um. So Tony GMA, who's been there since the beginning. I believe he worked on the Haddam Bulletin at one point. Deb Thomas, who's done kind of, she does like fun stories for holidays. She always does a spooky ghost story. She's, I believe she also wrote for the the Haddam Bulletin. One person that we had doing a nutrition column for a while, she's no longer doing it, but uh, she's written cookbooks. So we have had people, you know, with experience, not necessarily in the news, but in the writing arena. Give us an idea. Give us a sense. I mean, you obviously over those almost nine years, you've covered so many stories. Any ones that particularly maybe it's it's particularly thematic type stories or is there any things that particularly, you know, have stuck with you over those nine years? There was a fun one. And I don't remember where I saw it originally. It was somewhere on social media, probably on Facebook, about a guy who lived in Haddam or grew up in Haddam who went on to make designs for Hot Wheels. So I I don't remember even how I found a way to write to him, but somehow I found a way, I emailed him, did a story on him. And then I have also done a story on a kid in town. We kind of had a, um, I think it was called Incredible Kids series, something like that. And they were doing different fundraisers and I believe a nonprofit for type one diabetes. And it came out that they really liked Hot Wheels. And I said, oh, you know, you should really get in touch with this guy at Hot Wheels. And that kid ended up going to see this guy in, I want to say like in California, maybe, or in in somewhere else. And it kind of got a relationship between those two just, and, and, you know, I hadn't met either of them in real life. It was all just through emails and on Facebook and then connected these two. One lives in California, one live, you know, but grew up in Haddam and one lives in Haddam now. And I just, it was kind of a neat small world kind of a connection. That one is very memorable, but I've met, not that I've met any of them. It's almost all of my things are either rarely it's a phone call. It's almost always email and Facebook. But there's been some great stories about, you know, lost and found dogs and which are all important to local people. I mean, I know these like stories often get dismissed by people as, you know, well, there's nothing to it, but it, it does mean something to somebody. And I think a good story, well told, that's the art of of good writing and good journalism, because even if it just touches one person, you've done your job. And I and I've I liked writing them a lot. And and I may keep my hand in. I've definitely taken the summer off off. But I said that if some story strikes me, you know, I can still I'll still write it and send it in kind of thing. 
Now, let's quickly zoom forward to 2019, the beginning, sadly, of the global pandemic, COVID-19, which, of course, affected absolutely everybody. It had an effect on the newspaper, didn't it? Because for a while, I believe you actually had to stop doing the physical newspaper. So were you concerned, all of you at that point, that maybe it could have been the end? Um, I was not concerned. I know I, I personally was not concerned. We kept going with the, the online, even though we had to stop the print. And it's funny because... It was so doom and gloom right then. And my school closed down as well that I work at. And I was searching everywhere for the happy things. And I did a series of, the name escapes me right now, but it was good news or something, good news of from COVID. And it was, you know, all the people that were putting out hearts and signs and, you know, the, the thanking the frontline workers and how restaurants that were kind of closed down but they were making meals for either, you know, the ambulance or the fire department or the elderly and just delivering them with masks on. And there were all these feel good stories out there. And, and we kept those going online. And because there was so much shut down, it was actually a boon for the online newspaper because people were really paying attention to it. You know, when things opened and when they weren't and what things were being canceled and what were they, people were trying to do online. So that was just a hiatus. I, I didn't, I don't think any of us really felt like it was going to be forever. Now, as we said earlier, there have been a few recent additions to the online news outlets. The Connecticut Examiner is one that comes immediately to mind, uh, which is sort of did start here in uh, in Old Saybrook and has now spread its wings a little bit. Just recently, we've had the Connecticut Inside Investigator start, which is a more investigative um, online news outlet that seems to be based out of the Hartford area, but covers Connecticut. What do you think about some of these new online news outlets? I actually have not seen them, but I don't go out looking for news because a lot of the news that's out there is depressing. And so I tend not to pay attention to it. I'm sure I will now that I'm not going to be in the know. I was going to say, I mean, you know, where, yeah, where do you get your news sources? I mean, you've just said, obviously, you're, you're picky and choosy. And I think most of us are about where we get our news. I mean, that's why the, the industry is in the situation it's in, because people are getting it from various sources. But where, where do you like to when you do get the stories that you're after? Where do you tend to gravitate? I don't actually seek out news. I really was very insulated with it was only our community. And I kind of ignored everything else. And I'm kind of still doing that. Well, that certainly allows you to have that so like hyper local focus, doesn't it? I want to put this to you and see what your reaction is. Somebody wrote about you recently. It was a columnist actually on one of these uh, online news outlets who had a lot of dealings with you. And he said he actually referred to you as having a cordial yet straightforward style and always referred to you as Ms. Brown. <laughs> Mr. Keck. Yes, at the high school and on Connecticut News Junkie. I don't really put a lot of fluff in my words. I am pretty straightforward. And I just, most of what we got at the newspaper, I got through my personal email. So I sent an email out to about a hundred people saying, you know, just so you know, in like four days, I'm going to stop doing this. So start sending your information somewhere else, you know, to the editor's email. And I, I mean, I did say at the end, you know, thank you for all you've done with the newspaper and all that. But um, yeah, I don't put a lot of fluff. It's kind of, here's the information. And, and I don't know if that's just from, you know, being in the newspaper for so long with, I don't want to put fluff because I don't want to slant anything. It's just kind of, here's the information and do with it what you want. 
I think in my years of working in the industry, it's uh, probably very much a senior or as an editor's type of attitude, because otherwise they'd never get their job done at the end of the day. So they have to be a little bit hard nosed and, uh, and quite rightly so, as you say, they're there to steer the ship in the right direction. Kathy, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. Thank you for taking time out of your uh, your newspaper retirement, as it were, to speak to us here on Connecticut East this week. We love telling, obviously, stories about local people who have had such an impact on their community. We wish you well in whatever you do in the future. And of course, we wish the Haddon Killingworth uh, news continued success. Hope to obviously see the occasional article by you in there. But uh, again, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. And you can read all the news about the Haddam and Killingworth area online still at their website, hk-now.com. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... Healing Therapies Through Sharing is Eastern Connecticut's holistic wellness center for those recently diagnosed or living with a cancer diagnosis and their caregivers. We offer a range of services including adult and pediatric oncology massage, lymphatic drainage, craniosacral therapy, yoga for cancer, and much more. For details about our full range of services and our team of licensed professional therapists and providers, visit our website at healingtherapiesct.org or call us on 860-443-0800. We look forward to hearing from you. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, boulders disrupting pile driving for the redevelopment of the New London State Pier could add costs and complicate the schedule of the project, officials said at a Connecticut Port Authority meeting recently. Port Authority Interim Executive Director Ulysses B. Hammond said that three of nine stages of construction at the State Pier have run into difficulties and run behind schedule in the last month. Construction of the south wall of the pier, its tow wall and the heavy lift platform that will allow for it to be used for offshore wind staging. Hammond said the contractor Keywitch reported that higher than anticipated rock elevations and obstructions have negatively impacted pile driving progress on the pier, which needs to be substantially completed by March 2023 in order for Eversource and Orsted to use it for construction of their joint offshore wind project, South Fork Wind. Despite the issues, Hammond said the target is still substantial completion of the project before February 28, 2023, and final completion by June 2023. Already delayed by a lengthy permitting and appeals process, the cost of the project has ballooned to an estimated $250 million in an attempt to keep the deadline for South Fork. $255.5 million is currently available for the project, a figure that includes a contingency. 
In the day this week, U.S. Department of Labor Secretary Marty Walsh became the latest in a parade of President Joe Biden's cabinet members to visit Connecticut as he toured Ella T. Grasso Technical High School in Groton recently. Walsh, a former Boston mayor, celebrated the start of Career Connect, which is funding 19 job training programs at a cost of $70 million. The Eastern City Workforce Investment Board received $7,850,000, the largest of the grants. The State Office of Workforce Strategy is running the program, which is meant to help people whose employment was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic find work. The state legislator directed the federal money from the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, to this workforce development program. The U.S. Department of Labor wrote in a news release that Walsh visited Grasso Tech to highlight the Career Connect CT effort and to build partnerships across several industries and offer short-term training solutions to get thousands of people back to work. Employers such as Accenture, Eversource, Electric Boat, Hubbard Hall, Infosys, Orsted and Yale New Haven Health have committed to hiring 4,000 people through the program. Career Connect is looking to train and place workers in the manufacturing, healthcare, information technology, infrastructure, construction, life sciences and business services sectors, among other career paths. The new program comes as Electric Boat continues to ramp up its hiring. Spokesman for Electric Boat, Dan McFadden, said the submarine builder is looking to hire a total of about 3,900 people in 2022. This includes 900 skilled tradespeople in Groton and 1,343 at Quonset Point. In addition, the company's engineering design fleet support at all sites, but primarily Groton and New London is aiming to hire about 1,300 people. Since EB began working with the Workforce Investment Board in 2016, the company has hired 1,800 workers through the program and is expecting an uptick in hiring this year due to the expansion of Career Connect. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, Norwich voters will have the power to decide this fall whether the city spends millions of dollars on new school buildings. After a unanimous vote recently, the Norwich City Council sent the question of a $385 million plan with the city paying for $149 million after grants to referendum. The vote will happen during the general election on November 8th. The plan, if approved, will remodel Teachers Global Magnet Middle School, repurpose the Samuel Huntington School as a school district office, demolish seven elementary school buildings and build four larger ones, among other changes. Officials say many of the buildings are either wearing out or not fitting the school district's needs. District leadership also said it would be cheaper to have new buildings that can last 30 or more years than pay for 20 years of repairs at the current buildings. In the Middletown press this week, Middletown is in the process of removing algae blooms in water bodies that have become more abundant this year due to the heat and lower water levels. Naturally occurring microscopic cyan bacteria are found in lakes and ponds nationwide, according to the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. The blooms are caused by a mix of factors, too much sunshine, slow-moving water, and an excess of nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The two nutrients are commonly found in fertilizers and manure and can be carried into bodies of water via runoff from rainstorms and or from wastewater, the agency reports. DEEP is in the process of issuing permits for work at a number of ponds and lakes, according to city environmental planner James Sippoli. These include Westlake, the pond behind Sliders Bar and Grill on South Main Street, Veterans Park on Warnock Grove Road Pond, close to the Connecticut Trees of Honor, as well as Butternut Pond. 
And in the Chronicle this week, in Lebanon, the Jonathan Trumbull Library will celebrate its grand opening after a year-long renovation that doubled the size of the library to nearly 14,000 square feet. Ground was broken for the library renovation project on July 8, 2021. Over the past year, the library operated out of the Lebanon Community Centre. The renovated library now features a community room with a full cinematic experience. The newly renovated library also has a teen room, which comes complete with a green screen, sewing machine and a 3D printer. Those who tour the newly renovated library will also get to see the new story room and play area for children, as well as the library's new books and movies. Library director Matt Earls said the renovations were needed in order to make room for all of the activities at the library. In addition to traditional library functions, the Jonathan Trumbull Library offers many different programs like yoga and cartooning. The town authorised up to $5.875 million for the renovation project. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>